this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the Zechut of speaking to Dr. Tova Ganzel. Tova is a senior lecturer at the Multidisciplinary Department of Jewish Studies and is the head of Kromim, the Jewish Studies Honours Programme at Bar Ilan University. Previously, she was director of the Midrashat at Bar Ilan and is one of the first trained Yuatzot Halacha. She received her PhD from Bar Ilan's Department of Bible Studies and is a renowned figure in the world of women's Jewish learning, having published many works and books. Thank you so much, Toba, for joining us today. It's a real zechut to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a zechut to be here. I much appreciate it. So it's Desert Island Torah, three pieces of Torah that you would take to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to learning and finding out with you. So if we jump right in, should we go with your first piece? Um, yeah, so I was debating about my first piece, meaning I was debating where to start. But I think that I will actually start with my last piece. Meaning, if I look at the chronological order, then it would be the last piece. This is a poem uh, written by a very uh, prominent um, woman whose name is Zelda. Zelda was uh, a writer that um, is, was, is very well known in Israel. I don't know how well known she is abroad, but she lived between 1914 and 1984. Um, and she wrote many poems. She had a very uh, interesting life. She came to Israel from Russia. I won't go through her whole uh, life uh, story, but I will say that she wrote a poem, a short one that I chose for this podcast. It's called in Hebrew, Lo Erachef Bachalal. Uh, which I can translate to, I will not float in space. Um, looking for a translation for this podcast, I actually understood that she does have a, a book of poems that were translated, but I couldn't find any translation for this specific short poem. So I will do my best to read it and translate. I'll read it first in Hebrew and then in English. In Hebrew, the poem goes, Lo arachif bechalal, meshulachat resen, pen yevala anak. יבלה ענן את הפס הדקיק שבליבי, שמפריד בין טוב לרע. אין לי קיום בלי הברקים והקולות ששמעתי בסיני. So it's a short poem, like I said, uh, and we're just right after פרשת יתרו, so there was, this was very, um, I thought, appropriate, and I will now try to read it in a translation that I prepared this morning in English, and I hope it's sufficient. I will not float in space without rain, lest a cloud swallow, a thin strip of my heart, which separates good from evil. I have no existence without the lightning and the voices that I heard at Sinai. Um, and I'll say a few words about why this is so substantial and why this poem of Zelda I felt is um, such a strong piece in my mind. Uh, so I'll make a few, few comments. The first comment is that she takes this huge issue of what we got in Sinai, and she basically brings it into first person now, meaning when she says, I have no existence without the lightning and voices that I heard at Sinai, it, she basically transfers or transforms what we heard in Sinai as it's written in the Torah and brings us to the understanding that each one of us is standing now at Sinai. Um, and that's the first thing that I felt was very substantial here. The second thing is being existent, meaning 
what's, what's the Davar Ma'amid? What's the thing that brings us existence or holds our existence to, in the world? And she reflects that back, looking at the lightning and the voices that I heard in Sinai again, first person. So that's the second part of the poem. The first part of this poem also addresses something that I think in a postmodern world is extremely substantial. When she says, the thin strip of my heart, which separates good from evil, she's basically saying there's good and there's evil. And we need this in the Hebrew word, it's pas hadakik, this very, very thin line that separates between good and evil. And I want to say that sometimes in this uh, world, um, we're already hesitant to say that things are absolutely good or things that absolutely are evil. And I think that the fact that she says there's a very strict line in the heart really reflects the ambiguity that we live in in this world of uh, having sometimes a hard time to say things with a clear-cut manner. There was a rabbinic dispute today in uh, Friday in Israel on how to address the earthquake in Turkish in Turkey. And I was thinking to myself, that used to be cross the board, something that people could say one kind of sentence about, which was such a catastrophe, people are dying. And even that became, in the modern society of Israel, uh, something to be disputed about how to look at and what you should, how it should be addressed. So to my mind, this holding on to a wanting to be an existent, understanding between good and bad, making it clear that what makes us uh, sustainable in this world is what we heard in Sinai is very significant. And now I'll go to the first part of the song and maybe to end with that, the, the first uh, uh, source that we're looking at today which is lo erachef bechalal meshulachat resim. I will not float in space. You know, we have this tendency to kind of hold on to the ambiguity, to, to hold on to uh, leave, letting go of concrete things. And she, when she says that she's not going to float in space, she's basically saying that maybe she would want to have float, floated in space. Without anyone, nothing holding on to her, bringing her back to the earth. Because she's saying if she does, if she goes on floating, maybe it'll be hard for her to differentiate between um, exactly that, what the thin strip in her heart differentiates and separates between good and evil. So the opening of her song is something I could totally identify with. The willingness or wantingness to sometimes kind of feel that we're floating in space and above space, especially in a world where out of space is something that we feel like reachable and uh, can see it through metaverse and other kinds of uh, electronic device, but also through our ways of thinking and through our uh, technologies. Um, but she's, she's giving us something that contradicts that notion of ours and telling us, no, we should go back and really um, try to hold on to that thin line that almost doesn't exist because that's how we're connected back to Sinai. So that's Zelda's song and Zelda's poem, um, with, which I feel is very uh, substantial and existentiality these days. Um, and I will just say one more word. 
Um, Belda also actually has another song oh, that was translated. It's called Im Savi, With My Grandfather. And that's a little bit more popular maybe because it was translated. Um, and that poem goes, like our father Abraham who counted stars at night, I'm already reading the translation, who called out into his creator from the ferns and the Hebrew would read, who bound his son on the altar, so was my grandfather. And the reason I'm mentioning this song of Zeldazam as an adjunct to the other one is just because um, I feel that when Zelda discusses Sinai or Abraham of Avinu or her grandfather, she always has this dialect within it about, on the one hand, this is our tradition, this is what holds us here and what we hold on to. And on the other side, and it's true also about this song with my grandfather of Zelda's that you're more than welcome to find the end of and see that it really holds again this uh, ambivalence or questioning about God and questioning about the world and the feeling or the notion that we don't always understand God's rulings around here. And it's really what she's holding on to all the time, feeling that she's in one minute, she won't be here. And then the second, second moment, she's going to hold on to what does hold her here, which is um, like we saw in the poem I read before, the lightning and the voices that I heard at Sinai. So that's the first uh, source. I love it. I love the connection between the tradition and things that really like stand out in society. Yeah, even though she did write it, you know, a few decades ago, and it's not from the days of the first or second temple or the sages' times, but but yeah, it it does it does address very contemporary issues in my mind. Absolutely. So should we move on to your second piece? Uh, yeah. So now let's go back on to um. We'll go. We'll work our way back chronologically. So now, since we're right after Parashat Yitro, and we heard Zelda's poem, so the second source I actually brought is uh, from a Gemara called Masechet Shkalim. And the reason I chose Masechet Shkalim is because it's also Parashat Shkalim this Shabbos, but it's also because I feel that this Masechet has two very unique things that I want to uh, emphasize. The first one, uh, which to my mind is very substantial, is it's the only Masechet um, in the Shas, in the Talmud of Bavli, that actually is Mishnayot, has Mishnas, the Tanaic sayings, and doesn't have any Talmud Bavli on it, meaning the Babylonian Talmud does not exist for Masechet Shkali. So ask me, how does it show up in our Shas in our, you know, in our whole Babylonian Talmud. Well, the answer is that into our Babylonian Talmud, in Masechet Shkalim, is printed the Yerushalmi Talmud, meaning there's only a Yerushalmi edition to Masechet Shkalim. And therefore, when the editors and printers printed the Babylonian Talmud, what they did was, after Psachim, they put in Shkalim, 
And they didn't put in only the Mishnah, they also put in the the Yerushalmi Talmud. So we are kind of looking through the Dafyomi, if you study Dafyomi, or if you're looking through the Babylonian Talmud, and all of a sudden, without even noticing, we take this small Masechet, it has only 21 pages, approximately, and we actually, even not only knowing it, are learning from the Yerushalmi Talmud. So, so in the outset, I'll say that it's very substantial to me because we're usually um, looking at the Babylonian Talmud as part of the diversity in the value, in the evolution process of Am Yisrael, meaning the nation kind of came to Israel and then was exiled in different periods, and then a certain section of it based itself in Babylonia, while other uh, Jews lived in Jerusalem and studied or or their studies were uh, echoed in the uh, Yerushalmi Talmud, and then we know there were groups in Egypt, and we know there are groups in, of Jews in different places. And in all the disputes within the Gemara, we always say, okay, even within the Gemara, they say here and there. There's If you're here, you're in Babel. If you're there, you're in Israel. Halan, halehu. We have, there's always this notion of two different separate, I would say, communities, or even um, rabbinic discourses. And what we see in my, through the glimpse eye of Masechet Shkalim is that without even noticing it, we could unite our conversation to be one. And Masechet Shkalim is such a nice example of that, where the Babylonian Talmud lacks its own statement and it just, and the editors kind of, and the printers filled it in with the Jerusalem voice, the Yerushalmi voice, and that's how we all become part of a global conversation, not one that just belongs to one part of the world. So that's why Masechet um, Shkalim is uh, what I chose from the outset, because the Yerushalmi is in the Bavli. But the second thing is also that one of the Mishnayot, which I find very substantial um, in Masechet Shkalim, which basically deals with the Machatita Shekel, the Hafto Shekel, that they used to take from all of Israel from the first day of Adar to the first day of Nisan, and everyone gave the same amount um, in order for the temple to have all its needs given or donated by from all of Am Yisrael. Um, and one of the things that's so amazing is that you can see in the Masechet Shkalim um, that they're debating about things that current that are totally relevant today. If we, for instance, uh, collect money for different sources, which I don't know about you, but ever since uh, all these options uh, online became available to collecting money, their head starts, I think I get one every other day. So <laughs> these questions are really relevant to all of us in day-to-day -day life. And the second chapter, the, the and the fifth Mishnah, in the second chapter of Masechet Shkalim, tells us, I'm not going to uh, go on. I'll translate it. Basically, what the Gemara is telling us is that if you have extra, the Mishnah is telling us, sorry, that if you have extra money, when you, um, you know, you try to do this fundraising for this prisoner, you wanted to do Pidyan Shvoim, and now you have extra money. What do you do with it? Do you donate it to a different cause or do you give it to this prisoner? And the Mishnah, the Tanaic uh, interpretation is, no, first of all, give it to him. If he has extra needs, it should 
you should come out of the prison with some extra money. Motaranim, what's left over that was collected for a certain um, a certain poor person should be given to that poor person, Motaramitim, Amitim, etc., etc. Meaning there's this question of what you're supposed to do when you when you have extra money that you collected and how it should be distributed. And even though today we don't have machatita shekel, we don't collect half a shekel for the Beit Mikdash, we still are addressing the same exact moral questions um, that they were dealing with then. And I'll say just one other thing about this specific source, which is the Gemara, when it explains it, goes on to discussing or elaborating on different uh, things that the, these rabbis used to do. Um, or There are different, I would say, different ways of learning, different ways of communicating. Uh, some are bothering the others. And, and that's a whole conversation that if we would have time now and we would study in depth, we would see that it really reflects our day-to-day -day debates with our colleagues. Uh, it deals with questions of how should you reference someone or quote him or bring someone in his name? And what do you do if, you miss an, if he passed by you and he didn't uh, acknowledge you politely? Uh, and questions like that that I feel I can totally relate to. Um, and I would say even more, I'll just give one example of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel that says, and Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel states that we shouldn't build um, you know, magnificent graves around our rabbis after they die. Instead, we should learn their words in their remembrance. And I think even that's a very relevant uh, comment to make, especially in days where we see ruins all over and graveyards are being destroyed, uh, you know, around the world by um, these acclim changes, and we kind of want to hold on to places and people and things, and the Gemara gives us uh, some kind of resolution, not to say that it's always a comfort, but at least to say that if you want to hold on to your tzaddikim, your righteous men, then quote them, hem um, so that's the second source I chose, and I chose it really because it, I feel it's a serious bridge between Babylonian and the Yerushalmi Chavot, uh, but also because of how something that we can think is totally irrelevant to our lives today, like Machatzita Shekel and Parashat Shkalim, becomes so relevant um, when you see the discourse in the Gemara. So that's the second source. I love that. What does it mean to you? <laughs> Um, it means to me that really our rabbinic tradition is live and relevant and is out there for us to continue um, corresponding with and building in on our own new levels and making it relevant to us and contextualizing it into our world. Um, and sometimes it may seem like, why does something a rabbi say it in the third century see? Be relevant to us and then you you look at it from another angle and you say wait a minute i was collecting tzedakah for some woman and really we had some extra money and i was exactly wondering if it goes back to her 
even though what we wanted to get for her is done, or I should look for a different poor person. And here we can see this whole conversation being held on as if it was exactly the, you know, the conversation I was having in the community, in our community. So important and really powerful. So should we move into your third piece? So my third piece, which is actually my first one, right? We said we're going back in chronological order. We started with Zelda's poem. We moved on to the Gemara and Masechet Shkalim. And now I actually want to bring um, verses from the book of Haggai. Haggai is almost one of our last minor prophets. And he prophesizes to the nation um, in the days where the second temple is supposed to be built, meaning Cyrus has already had his declaration. He told the Jews they can come back from exile. Uh, some of the Jews came, others didn't. And the reason I want to look at these psukim is because I feel that these psukim especially um, are something we could learn from. When the exiles came back to Israel, I guess many of them were hoping that Beis HaMikdash would come down from heaven or that um, the turning point in Am Yisrael would be so self-evident that it wouldn't be controversial. And instead, the book of Haggai actually demonstrates the fact that, you know, it's already quite a few years after Cyrus gave the declaration, Am Yisrael could build a temple and nothing's happening. And the second pasuk in the first chapter says, So said the Lord God. This nation is saying, or in other words, the nation is saying, time hasn't come yet, it's not time for the temple to be built. And then Hashem answers them, he tells them, God's words is going to come to Chagai, and what's he going to say? You're sitting in your own houses, you're not doing anything to start building the temple. And my house, there he's talking about your houses, as opposed to my house, it's still ruined. No, this is what I call you to do. You feel that there's not a lot of rain, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot to eat. You come out here your fields and you don't see that there's a lot uh, to actually bring home in order to make sure that you have a full meal. You don't can't even make bread. You're looking around and you're thinking that this all should happen from heaven. Well, God tells them, it's up to you. You should go there, you should build the temple. And once you start building, my glory will be there. And the, the verses, a few verses later, emphasized, My temple is being destroyed, and you are each sitting in your own house. And that's why there's no rain and so on and so forth. So basically the reason I feel this is so substantial is because many verses of the Torah, when we look at, um, 
you know, we're stunned or we have the feeling that we can't really understand or that we don't have the full picture or that it's beyond us to understand God's wills. But here in the book of Haggai, which is almost the last of the minor prophets, we hear a real conversation and we hear God demonstrating what the people were thinking. And we hear the people were thinking, hey, wait a minute. This isn't what Geula was supposed to look like. This isn't what we thought it would look like when Hashem would build his second temple. We thought a temple would come from heaven. We thought there would be a lot of rain. We thought that it would be obvious and clear cut that Hashem is with us. And instead, what we're hearing is that even though rain is a very, very um, dramatic symbol about our relationship with Hashem, the fact that it's not coming down now doesn't mean that God's not with us. What it means is that he's waiting for us to to start building the temple first. And the specific call of Hashem is, you start building instead of running to your own house, that them and you start building, and then God's glory will, will come into it. And you shouldn't worry. You shouldn't feel like it has to set a certain standard. You shouldn't think that it has to look at a certain image. It's really up to you. And the reason I find this source extremely substantial is because I think it's it's a lot of our belief in God. It's also a belief in the fact that things will happen miraculously. And at least to a certain point, um, will be transformed in a miraculous way. Um, and all we have to do is pray, or all we have to do is sit and wait, or all we have to do is watch out and be patient. And I think what we learned from the beginning of the sem- Second Temple years and from this very specific dialogue that Hashem chose to, to keep w- with us within the Tanakh for decades, uh, ever since until these days, is that it's really up to us and that there's free will in the world. And uh, what we do is really the way uh, or the way we choose to be active or to live our lives um, really has very important consequences and implications. And if it's true in the days that are recorded in the prophecy of Haggai, then it's obviously true ever since uh, in the days there's no, there's no Nevoan. We just don't have another voice telling us, um, you know, it's up to you. But really we were left, the end of the prophetic era left us with the message that it's up to us. Such a nice message, really, really important. And I really, really connect to that. Um, thank you so much for sharing three really, really inspiring pieces of Torah with us today. Thank you. I was glad to be here. And I really think that if we go back to the chronological order, we should be looking at Haggai that reflects a whole world of the Tanakh and then look at Masechet Shkalim that reflects the whole world of the Babylonian and the Yerushalmi Talmud all what our Tanaim and Amoraim left for us there. And then if we looked at a look at Zelda, we're basically looking at how, how contemporary uh, Jewish life um, continues the ongoing dialogue. And really, um, I think Zelda was also a woman. So it's another reason why I specifically connect to her voice, because I feel it really holds the dialect that we're kind of, uh, trying to grasp with in many different uh, ways of thinking and in many different forefronts we have 
in our contemporary Jewish life. Absolutely. So important. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Am Yisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.